if you want me to put on a date on it, I still maintain that this won't drag on in the way that some commentators have been claiming. I don't think it can. I don't think the Russians can sustain it. I think the Ukrainians certainly can. I don't think the Russian military machine is capable of conducting a military campaign whilst falling to pieces. So if you want me to put a date on it, I would say three more months. I would say the end of August. There was a head of Ukrainian intelligence who said the end of August, and I don't mind going with that. Hello, folks. Tom Ashton here with my very old friend, James Jackson. And this is our podcast, Bloody Violent History. On the 29th of March, we published an episode on Russia and the war in Ukraine. Today, we release our Bloody Russia 2 tipping point. The appalling Putin and his ghastly acolytes in the Kremlin have unleashed hell in Ukraine. Putin, a small man with a squeaky voice and a venal disposition, has climbed to the top of the greasy pole of Russian power politics. His rivals and critics have been crushed, imprisoned and defenestrated. I think it's fair to say that he is an evil man, as are those who surround him evil as the despotic judge in Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian, but without the terrifying intellect, evil as Vlad the Impaler without the romance of the vampire, a Caliban without the smallest hope of redemption, just an evil little man. It has been over three months since the invasion on the 24th of February. We've seen the brilliant performance of the Ukrainian armed forces repelling the clunking Russian military from Kiev and Kharkiv. We've seen the fall of Mariupol and the Azov-style steelworks after valiant Ukrainian resistance. We've seen the emergence of Russian barbarism, rape, pillage and murder in the 21st century. We've seen the democratic countries of the world, well most of them, respond with money, weapons and aid. We've seen the embargo of grain at Odessa, preventing Ukraine from shipping food desperately needed across the world. And now the Russian military, seemingly a mix of very young, undisciplined soldiers led by mendacious and corrupt officers, deploy the last resort in military tactics left to an army that is incapable of manoeuvre and performing modern combined operations. They have resorted to rubbleizing the towns of eastern Ukraine, blasting the citizenry to death and then creeping forward to claim a cowardly localised victory. Jamie, three months in, how have things evolved, and are we really at some kind of tipping point? Well, the fact that you even mention localised victory says it all. All the great strategic objectives that Russia was aiming for three months ago when they went in, they have failed to achieve. The fact that Mariupol is their only significant gain since then is an example of how they failed. They have been pushed back from Kiev, they've been pushed back from Kharkiv. They're never going to take Odessa. So you can be damn sure that that southern coast, you can be damn sure the north is safe. And the fact that they've had to push their operations to the east retreat from their original plan of Blitzkrieg and go for this mass front. Even their 
mass approach across that long front in the east, they've had to narrow down because that wasn't working either. Uh, people were saying, oh, they're, they're going to be in a much stronger position because they can manoeuvre, they can use their artillery. But in fact, it's, it's like coloured balls on a pool table. They're easier to spot and easier to take out. And you can see what trouble they're in by the fact that they're even deploying T-62s, tanks that were designed in the 1950s. So their modern equipment, what they had, has been completely denuded, whereas the inventory of the Ukrainians is improving by the week. So that sort of balance, that superiority that the Russians might thought to have been had, has, has gone. Okay, so this we're talking about the evolution of the conflict. It's pretty grim, isn't it? It is very grim. But before we go into that, Tom, I want to start off with 10, okay? Um, name me a country that had 5 million men under arms, that had over 800 combat aircraft and capitulated in less than half the time that Ukraine has now held out. Well, knowing you, Jamie... <laughs> The only Go answer on, to that has to be France at the beginning of the Second World War. Oh, damn it. You got that. Okay, well, you won't get this one, okay? Right. Name me a country that even after Putin's invasion of Crimea in 2014 continued to sell weapons and defence upgrades to Russia right up till 2020, including attempts to sell two Mistral-class amphibious landing ships. You'll never get it. And there goes our last French listener. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I think yeah. it's worth saying, and I think it's also worth saying, that what this conflict has done is put into perspective some, some big issues. The first thing is that, as every generation needs to be reminded, that appeasement doesn't work. That's the first thing. And secondly, that things such as self-determination, sovereignty and the nation-state is worth defending and Ukraine has shown that and that is ultimately what saves freedom and what saves democracy. So those two issues are things that really stand out and that in three months have really been solidified in people's minds around, around the world. But as you say, things have become, as we said in the last podcasts, as we predicted, have become extremely grim. But it's something that has a long thread through Russian history. Yes, I mean, you've got the Black Hundreds, the Prozarist group. Yes, they were ultra-nationalists back in the early 20th century. And they were really used by Tsarist forces to conduct pogroms, to attack towns, to murder Jews... And it's so similar to the sort of ultra-nationalists, the Russian nationalists in the Donbass, for example. And the sort of attitudes that you're getting among the, the Russian soldiers. And, and again, that sort of behaviour has, has gone all the way through Russian history, from Tsarist times through the First World War, Second World War, the mass rapes of German women at the end of the Second World War. It is no different to the sort of behaviour, the casual brutality and cruelty that you're getting on an epic scale today. Well, you have to train young men when they're soldiers and they're armed and they're frightened 
to be disciplined and to follow their orders, but not follow illegal orders. That's what we would do in democratic countries. Not only have the Russians failed to do that, they actually have always seemingly actively encouraged the opposite. Well, they're so brutalised themselves that brutalising others is just normal. It is part of the terror campaign, part of the terror tactics that are really in the military lexicon of, of, of Russia. And it always has been there. And I don't know why anyone's surprised. This is what they do. And it's why when we said things are going to get grim, it was with a certain degree of resignation and, and foreboding that one said that, because those sort of universal crimes were going to be revealed as the Russians withdrew. And there will be more and more of those situations. I mean, it did seem to me that that young Russian soldier who's been convicted in Kiev of uh, murdering uh, that um, man uh, in uh, early on in the conflict is a bit of a scapegoat. I mean, I hope it's just a precedent they're setting and they're not just scapegoating a young, dumb soldier. What they need to do is go all the way to the top. They need to get the officers on the stand. But but also I think it is important to lay down the principle that you cannot say, I was just obeying orders. I think that is really important to stress that and to show that discipline and decency and the Geneva Convention and the rights of non-combatants are respected. The problem is if the military strategy is to lay waste to civilian population areas, which is Russian military strategy, because they're not going to achieve anything on the battlefield. So laying waste to the Donbass is what they do. And then they can say, we have achieved victory because we're standing on smoking ruins, whether it's Mariupol or anywhere, Severodonetsk, for example. Uh, they can say, this is, this is victory, that we have achieved something. But what they've achieved is just a wilderness. Uh, but at least they can say they control it. I think from the point of view of the Russians, the big problem for them is that even if they dig in, what they will be facing will be the kind of insurgency that they were unleashing against Ukrainian forces over the last decade. So they will have exactly the same problem, and it will be very difficult for them to hold that territory. OK, well then let's move on a bit to concentration of force. Where are we with that? Well, this was an issue that we mentioned in the last podcast, the, the fact that they... they found it very difficult to concentrate force because they didn't have the numbers and they didn't have the infantry to guard the armoured columns. And they didn't have the control. They, they couldn't control large numbers. They, they couldn't control large numbers either, so they couldn't go off piece, they couldn't go off road. Then they switched to the Donbass, and the problem was they switched so quickly that, again, they didn't manage to reconstitute their forces, they didn't manage to direct them properly, and they still had the problems with command and control and logistics. So they piled in there, and again, they were met and pushed back. So, uh, yes, they make grinding one-mile advances a day, but that's not a lot in an area like that. It's not difficult to advance, or it shouldn't be difficult to advance over open terrain like that. But they are being picked off and suffering huge casualties. Of course, the Ukrainians are suffering huge casualties as well. But they have the manpower. Russia, in the end, 
does not. I and also Ukraine, I mean, they're fighting, you know, they have the existential crisis. They are fighting for their country. They did. And I never believed that, that Putin was going to announce some general mobilisation because it would have simply been shoving more shit down the sewer pipe. I mean, you still have that But he problem. doesn't mind doing that, does he? Yes, but it doesn't lead anywhere on the battlefield. It, it's, it's just more untrained men with more bits of lousy equipment. They've lost so much of their decent kit or what they thought was decent, that they are really relying. They're, they're just scraping the, 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 the dregs now in terms of what equipment they, they can come up with. My feeling at the moment is that the Ukrainians are hanging on in there because they haven't yet got all the kit they need and they haven't got their men trained on all the kit. I mean, they're going to need a lot of kit from the West. But in the meantime, something that they have got and have had from the beginning, seemingly, is the force multiplier of the intelligence. Oh, intelligence has been critical to that. We mentioned that in the last podcast. And if you look at the number of NATO aircraft flying up close against the border, you can see that the, how important that intelligence gathering has been and that passing on of coordinates has been. It's no coincidence that that is why the command posts have been hit and why so many Russian officers have been taken out. And if you add to that the lack of an NCO corps, the way that the Russians operate in terms of top-down lack of personal initiative, sending their generals forward to impose control and command, you're always going to get... Uh, a swathe of Russian generals being taken out and senior officers being taken out, and that is what is happening. At the beginning, I mentioned that their tactics now are rubbalizing um, towns in eastern Ukraine. Will there become a moment where the Ukrainians have enough uh, heavy artillery and enough technology so that every time the Russians line up their rocket launchers or their artillery to take out a town and fire a few shells and in the direction of Ukraine, they will the counter-battery fire will take them out as, in short order. Well, yeah. the Ukrainians have become extremely good at counter-battery fire, and you look at the equipment that, that, that the UK and the US have been sending in particular, includes counter-battery radar systems. So uh, they will certainly steal a march on the Russians. And the new M777 howitzer, the 90 that have been sent across by the US, uh, UK-designed, incidentally, they are very good and have a longer range than Russian and Soviet-era howitzers. So they should actually be able to uh, take out Russian forces at a longer range. The problem is that Zelensky's been asking for multiple launch rocket systems, which we should have sent earlier, in the same way that we should have sent anti-ship missiles earlier. Do we do we have multiple rockets? We do, we oh. do. Oh. And... Uh, but the Americans have been quite wary about sending that, so partly in terms of training, partly, I suspect, because they don't want kit to fall into the hands of the Russians. Yeah. Uh, we don't want them to start developing stuff over time uh, that they don't have at the moment. They've always had a lot of rocket systems, the Russians, but we certainly could have supplied the Ukrainians with more kit. What do they call them in the Second World War? Stalin's... Stalin's organ. Stalin's yeah. organ. Yeah. Yes, and and uh, those those sort of kit, bits of kit had a huge psychological effect. Yeah. Uh, you don't want to be on the receiving end. 
but they're terribly inaccurate. I, I remember the description. Maybe we talked about it of Congreve's rockets at the Battle of, uh, was it at um, Balaclava or something like that? I mean, they were just as likely to come back and get you as. as yes, get I, I, th- I think they had a few Edison Douana as well. <laughs> <laughs> they were Victorian. There's Victorian. But actually, the, the Western MLRS are extremely accurate, and you can get terminal guidance and uh, all sorts of things. So it, it, it's a question of the, the, the warheads and guidance systems that you send with the rockets. But, but uh, we certainly should be thinking about sending that. Uh, to the Ukrainians. Yes, okay. Now, this is something that concerns me because we uh, have had this tremendous, certainly in what might be called the West America and Europe, support for Ukraine at the beginning of this horrible conflict. But my concern is backsliding and whether or not certainly some countries in Europe and not the northern states and the Baltic states or, or Britain, but some of the other countries are going to start backsliding and, and, and saying that Ukraine should accept some sort of loss of territory and should come up with a peace? I think we've got to be very careful that appeasement does not uh, creep in. It's very easy in these situations to make compromises on behalf of the Ukrainians, and it should be the Ukrainians who decide. It's their territory under threat. But if you look at the response of certainly EU states, during the time between uh, the invasion of Crimea in 2014 and the invasion of Ukraine, you can see the, the sort of differing attitudes. You know, there was Berlusconi in Italy holidaying with uh, Vladimir Putin. There was Macron uh, the year after the invasion of Ukraine in the VIP box in the Moscow Stadium. There were people like Gerhard Schroeder, former Chancellor of Germany, uh, getting onto the board of Rosneft. You know? And they signed the um, Nord Stream 2 deal after the Crimea. That, that's right. And Schroeder went on to join the board of Rosneft in 2017. So it's extraordinary, these sort of moral compromises that so many of these Western pol- political leaders made. And, and, and Russia took advantage of that. They knew that uh, their oil dollar, their gas dollar carried weight and they knew that people would bend over backwards to uh, suck at the Russian teat and 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 that's one of the reasons I'm sure that Putin went into Ukraine because he thought that that sort of coherent cohesive approach by the West would not stick would not stay fast and when you start getting op-eds in the New York Times saying oh well there should be compromise Ukraine should see territory Again, I think we put this into the last uh, Bloody Russia podcast. Uh, I can't see uh, Zelensky and Ukraine ceding the East to Russia. I simply can't see that because Ukraine does not want to become an agrarian backwater while the industrial heart of Ukraine gets ripped out and given to Russia. Yes. And of the three, France, Italy and Germany, because I think that's who we're talking about, Germany is the one that needs to hold strong. They're, that's the key, isn't it? That, that is the key, because they're the ones who have been the wobbliest up until now and are most likely to backslide. When you see the sort of equipment that they wanted to send, I mean, obviously we know about they're sending 5,000 military helmets before this all broke out. They then said, oh, we're going to send Jeopard tanks. Well, frankly, 
uh, anti-aircraft tanks with 35mm Ehrlichen cannons are not going to do a lot of damage to Russian aircraft. It, it, it was more just a sort of uh, token. Yeah, it was a, it was a gesture. And uh, given that the Swiss constitution doesn't allow the selling of weapons to zones of conflict and tension. It'll be interesting to see if the Swiss clamp down on sending spares, for example. You're going to pop up and remove the Erlikans. It could well happen. You you never know. But but this is what happens over time. People start, politicians start going, oh, well, this is uh, an economic hit for us. Do we really want to get involved? Shouldn't we making, be making placatory gestures? And, and looking at Germany, their Ostpolitik, their Eastern political view that, they, that that has been a consensus in Germany for decades. Part of it was that sort of World War II guilt, but a lot of it was actually commercial opportunism. It was just easy for them to take Russian gas and the the Russian ruble and yeah. cheap energy and and uh, they can sell their their gear around the world. Well, exactly, and it, it allowed the Germans not to take any sort of moral decision at all and turn a blind eye. But that's what so much of Europe did over those years, and that is why Putin got away with it. Well, we need to keep reminding everyone that there's a danger of that. No backsliding. Okay, on to um, nuclear, because it does come up time and again, the use of tactical nuclear weapons or anything else. What, What do you think, more or less likely? Well, I think there are two levels here. Firstly is strategic nuclear, and you know the Russians are getting desperate when they start doing their nuclear sabre-rattling. I mean, we've now had the head of the Russian Space Agency saying that he that Russia would turn into nuclear craters any country that dealt with them impolitely. You just think, this is insane mobster talk. Uh, the, 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 the idea that there could be a nuclear weapon dropped in the sea and that would drown Britain in a tsunami, it, it's so hysterical and so mad. And given that the UK has 40 uh, Trident Mervs uh, stuck on a submarine (laughs) out at sea, I I don't think Russia would come off well if it tried that tactic. But it just shows that at that strategic level, their hysteria and desperation and how things have gone badly wrong. At a tactical level, as we said last time in the podcast, I'm very doubtful they would go down that tactical nuclear route for so many reasons. I, I think partly you would see China run forever from Russia. I don't think countries like India would ever be able to cozy up to Russia again. I think that if tactical nuclear weapons were used and you started seeing entire Ukrainian cities wiped out, you would simply get two or three million armed Ukrainians going into Russia in sabotage teams and destroying, laying waste to Russia. And Russia, having thought that it could destabilise the country next to it, would find itself completely destabilised. So I I just cannot see that situation arising. I think that they would rather claim a Pyrrhic victory uh, going down the route they've taken now rather than go down the chemical or or the nuclear route. So what about the danger of a fragmented country next to Russia? I I think that is going to be a worry for Russia, would be a worry for Russia. 
But I don't think this, Ukraine... this is if Ukraine splits into yes, pieces. Yes, yes. Yeah. But I don't think that will happen. I certainly think Ukraine will concentrate more on sabotage. I think Russia is intensely vulnerable to sabotage. You look at the fires and explosions that have broken out uh, over a wide area in munitions factories and design bureaus. And you look back to the 1990s when Russian nuclear fissile material was flooding back into Russia from the Soviet Union and Warsaw Pact. Uh, there was one episode where Western inspectors went into a warehouse that was guarded by one guard without uh, a walkie-talkie even. Uh, it had one rusting padlock, and there in this warehouse were 10,000 flasks containing plutonium. That could have produced thousands of dirty bombs. It could have been processed by countries uh, that had nuclear capabilities into hundreds of nuclear weapons, and it was just sitting there. So if that's a nuclear site, can you imagine how vulnerable so many of these other sites are across Russia to uh, Ukrainian intervention, to Ukrainian sabotage and special forces? Yeah, it's the stuff of nightmares. Yeah, so we, we said it's most unlikely the Ukraine will invade in a conventional way because they want to keep it defensive, but they'll certainly send in um, sabotage and, and, and special forces groups. Everyone got quite excited when that Russian colonel came on Russian TV and, and basically tore a strip off the performance of the Russian military at the beginning of this conflict. Uh, but in general, uh, the state, thoroughly state-controlled media, are completely sort of behind Putin. And I saw one or two things. I mean, their comments are comical almost. I mean, you know, they're having a good old rant at, at Britain and they're uh, talking about Mrs May's pasty skin <laughs> as though that's going to, you know, bring us to our knees and being rude about Boris. <laughs> but, but, but again, it's this, it's this Russian mindset, this Russian mentality that, that, that in spite of all their intelligence gathering and the money they've spent on trying to acquire information and a analysis, they get it so wrong. They don't understand the Western mindset. They think we're weaker than we are. They don't understand the intrinsic strengths of democracy. And they don't understand that when push comes to shove, when there is a conflict and when there is an existential threat, we will actually step up. And that they weren't expecting at all. And we put a lot of brains on the problem rather than just Putin, you know, micromanaging the tactics of eating in the Donbass. But, but it is this top-down approach that is killing the Russian campaign. I mean, it was interesting when that uh, former Russian Air Force Major General was shot down in, guess what, a Su-25 Frogfoot, the, the very plane that we mentioned in our last podcast as being extremely vulnerable. There he was over the Luhansk region in a Su-25 and being shot down. He obviously pulled a favour from one of his general mates and, and, and said, I want to see the battlefield, and, and died doing it. And this is the, the, the craziness of the I situation. I thought you said the ejector seats were, were good. Did, did somebody sort of cut through the, the, um, the cord? For, well, well, given yeah, that this was a, a, a 1970s era aircraft, I should think that nothing was working. Oh dear. Yeah. Or, or, or he was hit by a fragment in the cockpit. I mean, any of the systems could have gone. So, but, but uh, yeah, it, it didn't turn out well for him. One of the things that Hitler did towards the end of the war, perhaps throughout the war, was um, 
he he was both excited by and got uh, the German people excited by miracle weapons. And we've heard a few of these talked about too. Anyone who's seen Arnie Schwarzenegger in uh, the Terminator movies will have seen all the excitement of the Terminator tank that the Russians have now produced uh, and, and, and other miracle weapons as well. Again, it's so typical and it's so indicative of the sort of panic, this idea that everything can be put in one weapon system and it will turn events. Uh, you look at the BMPT Terminator. This is, a, this is a vehicle. Can you imagine the level of maintenance it requires, given that it has anti-tank weapons, it has cannon, it has grenade launchers, and no vehicle, no armoured vehicle is... Invincible. Do you think they just have one button inside their press and everything goes off at once? <laughs> well, it, it, it only has to be hit by an anti-tank and it will go up at once. The, the fact that the, the jack-in-the-box principle, the vulnerability of the uh, Russian tanks, for example, and the fact that some of the, sometimes their turrets are blown 250 feet in the air shows the vulnerability. And the BMPT is not going to be any different to that. Then you get the laser weapon that the, the Russians have been promising. I mean, they can't even maintain their, their ev average everyday weapons. So how are they going to maintain a laser weapon and deploy that? Again, is totally laughable. There have been rumours... But, but, well, appalling um, rumours that um, they're, they're going back to incredibly basic terror weapons of barrel bombs that are used in Syria. Yeah, that's totally absurd. I mean, the barrel bomb can be effective if you're dropping it on a school or a hospital and you're not facing surface-to-air missiles of any kind. But if you're flying over Ukrainian territory you are going to be brought down because to drop a barrel bomb, you essentially have to drop it from a helicopter or from a very slow-moving transport aircraft, in which case that you are going to be shot down. So it doesn't make any difference whether they bring in so-called experts. It doesn't require an expert to create a barrel bomb. So it, it just strikes me that the, the, the Russians are clutching at straws, doing their usual. It, they're not going to come up with the answer with just a particular weapon system. So the last question in this section really is about the expansion of NATO and whether or not that's a good thing and whether or not Putin has achieved exactly the opposite of what he hoped he would achieve. He has achieved completely the opposite to what he hoped to achieve. He never expected NATO to expand because he thought that Europe and its response, the West's response, would be one of crumbling servitude towards the Russians and a, and a sort of acceptance of a fait accompli. We said last time that Sweden and Finland would apply for NATO membership. They have. It would be interesting to see what Russia, having made all these threats, is going to do about that. Putin has just really had to accept that they would join NATO he probably have to send up a burnt-out tank on a flatbed, which is, after all, what I thought he had stuffed the May Day parade in Moscow with. I think they did a reenactment with um, uh, Kit from the Second World War, didn't they? Rather like the sort of royal tournament, probably because they, they had to go to the museums and get what kit they could. More seriously, the uh, the arrival of Sweden and Finland actually could 
could perhaps strengthen some of this tendency to backsliding? It's huge. The, the, The strategic abort hasn't really been worked through yet, but it is huge. Not only in political terms of seeing neutral countries move into the NATO orbit, but it is a vast military expansion in terms of military capability. The the fact that Finland has the largest artillery army in Europe, has 700 uh, long-range howitzers, 700 uh, mortars, heavy mortars, has 100 rocket systems. And they can put 250,000 men in the field. Exactly. And they may be conscripts, but like the Ukrainians, they are motivated. It is their homeland. And they haven't forgotten that their country was under Russian rule and Soviet rule for a long time. So they're not going to give up territory. And it's incredibly important that that 800 miles or 810 miles of common border with Russia is defended. You look at the Swedes, for example, and their contribution. They have an incredibly good defence industry. Just looking at the JAS-39 Gripen fighter, the first of the fourth-generation fighters to be produced, that was from Sweden. You look at every major naval gun, the heavy-caliber guns, the five-inch guns in the US Navy, they are Bofors guns. I mean, they may be owned by BAE Systems now, but that is a Bofors gun. That is a Swedish-designed weapon system. So... They've got a very good defence industrial base, very good armed forces. It holds the Russians into the Baltic. It, it, it guards that frontier for the first time and integrates the, uh, the air defence systems of that region. And so, Russian uh, memories won't be so short that they won't, uh, they won't have forgotten what happened when the uh, entire Soviet army uh, piled into Finland at the beginning of the Second World War, and the and the Finns gave them a bloody note. Well, I mean, and, and I mean, they were uh, eventually they did have to sign a a, a, a treaty with Russia, but but um, now the Finns have got the backing of NATO. That would be a very different thing. Well, I think the Russian memory of the Winter War is so short. That's why they then went and got malleted in Ukraine. <laughs> so they don't always they don't always learn. Well, it's our job to remind them. It certainly is. All right, Jamie. So. Let's have a little chat about where things stand now. The Americans have are going to send $40 billion worth of uh, kit and funds under a sort of lend-lease project. This would indicate that they feel there is a long conflict ahead and that they are committed to it. What do you think? I think some people have said this shows it's going to be a long, drawn-out conflict of attrition. I don't quite buy that. I think it's really more an indication of commitment, of a level of commitment, saying we're not going to step back from this. And it's a signal to the Russians of the kind of thing they're up against. We said at the beginning that the Russians were losing their best kit, had lost their best kit, whereas the Ukrainians were just beginning to get their best kit. And I certainly think that the nature of the campaign now with long-range howitzers, for example, shows that the pushback is beginning. I think it will be harder for the Ukrainians to, as we said in, in the last podcast, that it's harder for the Ukrainians to mount large-scale offensives. So they'll certainly do it locally, whether it's around Kherson or Izium. What do you mean, ever or just until they're up to I, I, speed? I, I certainly think till they're up to speed. I think that it would be easier for the Ukrainians to deal with 
picking off the Russians at long range, sending in insurgencies and small groups, it will be much harder for them to mount conventional combined arms operations against the Russians because it makes the Ukrainians as vulnerable as the Russians have been. And this has been the problem from the start. Retaking the ground is a much harder prospect, which is actually why grinding them down, making them destroy themselves against the cities has been such a, a positive uh, contribution by the Ukrainians has been such a successful strategy and the Russians have suffered. So, Do you, do you think the uh, Russians, sorry, the Ukrainians in the Donbass in the east who are Russian or Russian-leaning or were at the beginning of the conflict, are they now all on, or many of them now sort of on, on Ukrainian? I think side. a lot of them have moved, have moved to the Ukrainian side and a lot of them have fled. If you look at the cities that are under attack, uh, a lot of them have been depopulated because they knew what was coming and they certainly saw what had happened in Mariupol and they got the hell out. But it doesn't mean the Russians, even if they take those cities, because Putin is desperate for some kind of victory, even if it's just that local, you know, evening out the salience, taking those small pockets, he can say, I now have Luhansk. But he had most of Luhansk anyway. I mean, that's, it's not a huge land grab. It's not a huge success. And he still won't be able to push his forces westwards towards the Dnieper River. And he's, even if he says he's got it, it doesn't mean it's so. In, in so much as the, the Ukrainians will accept it. Well, it's not frozen and it's not a stable line. It's not a stable front line for Putin. The other thing he's failed to do, he's failed to push his forces north and south to form up. He failed to push his forces out of Kherson to cut the east-west rail links across Ukraine. And obviously he, he lost the north of Ukraine. So all those other objectives that he went for, he's just been narrowing and narrowing and narrowing, just so you can say, hey, I've got a victory, even if he hasn't. And there's just nothing to show for it at the end. He's just got a shattered army. He's denuded of equipment. He's denuded of manpower. The army is essentially destroyed. But just to, I mean, maybe it's not the right analogy, but to uh, compare to the beginning of the Nazi invasion of Russia in the Second World War and uh, Bar Barbarossa and all of that, the, the Russians were in, in disarray at the beginning and, and Stalin was trying to control it centrally and then he changed his plans and let his generals get on with it and they got their act together. Is, is there a danger or that, that the Russians, you know, if they can make this thing go on, can actually get their act together? I think it's much harder now because they don't have the mass industry hidden behind the Urals. They don't have the vast expanse of the defence industrial base and the military establishment. We're living in a different world. We're living in a world of precision weapons. So you can't just win through artillery bombardment. You have to be able to take ground, hold it, patrol, enforce your views, uh, have a population that is backing you. None of this is going to happen. And I don't know how, having lost his frontal forces, he's going to be able to train up new forces to take the initiative. And no one's going to volunteer to go forward in strike formations anymore from the Russian side. They don't have the generals, they don't have the officer class, they don't have the NCOs, and they don't have the soldiers. 
So I can't see how they're going to turn this around. We said in the last podcast that Putin had lost the day he went into Ukraine. I, I, I believe even more fervently in that now. I think that he's he shot his last bolt, and that's why we're calling it a tipping point. Putin the Putrid. The following is a short essay written and posted in February 2015 by James Jackson, examining the character of Vladimir Putin and the implications for Russians. Should I be found dead with a polonium tip suppository lodged in my backside, the finger of suspicion will point firmly at the Kremlin. For sure, its parade of goons and assassins has proved on occasion bungling and inept, witness their special forces at Beslan, their gassing with opioids of civilians during the Moscow theatre siege, and the trail of radioactivity left by the murderers of Alexander Litvinenko by Russian ham-fistedness and a lack of judgment do not render the country any less dangerous. For the sake of national pride and personal ego, Putin is dragging his fiefdom back to the Dark Ages. Expect a chill and threatening future. I've always believed in standing up to bullies and tyrants. As a teenager and at the height of the Cold War, I was photographed in central Moscow flipping the bird to the statue of the infamous Cheka secret policeman, Felix Zerzhinsky. Gesture politics, maybe, but it made me feel better. Cousins of mine had spent time in the Lubyanka. Yet that photo is a reminder of how little ever changes, how nations revert to type, how quickly we forget the past and let wishful thinking override reality. Once again, Russia is sabre-rattling and invading its neighbours. Once more, its long-range bomber fleet is mounting scare missions around the globe. A paranoid and defensive Kremlin is ever likely to lash out. The country remains what it has ever been, a third world state with oil and nukes and a lot of resentment. Gangsterdom reigns. To do business there, you must climb into bed, either with the politicians or the mafia, and relying on protection won't prevent you from being screwed or feeling violated. Friends who'd previously had dealings in Moscow once or twice had meetings with a strange and unappealing government minister named Vladimir Putin. Everyone sniggered that he had a voice like a woman. Perhaps they're not so ready with the laughter now. And incidentally, the charming right-hand man my friends employed ended up with several hollow-point rounds in his head. Sad how things turn out. I have my doubts that Russia will emerge blinking back into the light to rejoin the world community. A cave can be a comforting place for the controlling. The West never liked us anyway, Putin will tell his people. You're better off here with me. Russians like to be whipped and tyrannised by their masters. It's in their folklore and DNA, and Putin does just that. So the ruble drops, investment fades, foreign reserves run dry. So domestic inflation rises, and the stores run out of goods. It's a scenario that plays into the hands of the Russian leader, a self-fulfilling prophecy that the world is against Russia, and a strong hand will save the day. Each year, Stalin takes another step towards rehabilitation. Here we go again.
Unless it's caviar or gas, one should never buy a Russian product. Be honest, a Russian automobile or refrigerator is hardly a must-have. It's no coincidence that Russian fighter aircraft have among the best ejector seats in the world, Svezda, chiefly because the jet engines are so shoddy and liable to fail. Russia is feudal and rusting. It doesn't matter how many times it crawls up from the corrupt and inefficient pit it has dug. Putin understands the Russian psyche and knows how to exploit it. He recognises that the average citizen is essentially a tractor mated with a potato and order and stability are the key prerequisites. Forget the niceties. Few Russians care if the odd journalist is shot or if a lawyer gets beaten to death in jail. Life can be nasty, brutish and short. It certainly is in Russia. Check the life expectancy statistics. There's a grim fatalism in the Russian character and a certain inevitability to where the nation is heading. Where once Ivan the Terrible sent out his mounted enforcers with human skulls dangling from their saddles, Vladimir Putin sends out his hitmen to do his bidding. The man has issues. Bare-chested and riding a horse, wrestling a bear, the martial arts poses, the chaperoning of migrating geese from a microlight. No one is convinced he's normal. It's a question of time before he is toppled or he tops himself, and it would spare us a great deal of angst and the rest of the world a headache. I fear our relief might yet be short-lived. So that was seven years ago, Jamie. Uh, have you changed your mind about Putin? No. I still think that Russia is heading for the Dark Ages, and I think Putin is heading for disaster. Whenever a tyrant ends up with more hands-on control of what is happening at the front, you know things are going bad. You know things that things are not going to get better. He's not going to pull a rabbit out of the hat strategically or tactically. And he ain't the greatest military brain like Adolf Hitler. The fact that he sent his men in, his armies in, half-trained, uh, misdirected right at the start, means he's not suddenly going to get some incredible strategic vision and improve the lot of his soldiers or improve the outcome for his army. That, that bus has gone, that train has left the station. One of the things that was supposedly very um, worked against the Soviets when they invaded Afghanistan and Russian soldiers, young soldiers, were coming back injured or killed was this, these groups of mothers who started to get together and complain to the authorities about what was going on. This could happen again. And, I mean, it should happen again because they lost a lot more people in a shorter period. And, and these young soldiers had no clue what they were doing. One minute they were on exercise with a few months' training as a conscript, and the next thing they were thrown into a conflict. And you always get this officer class that don't give a damn about their men. This is the most extraordinary thing about the Russian system. You look back to the revolution in 1917 and the one and a half million men that were killed on the Western Front, the Russian Western Front, but obviously Europe's Eastern Front, and 
the wounded men coming back then. It was really the army, the Soviets and the revolutionaries within the army that started that whole process with military order number one and their desire for change, their desire for respect. And this has run all the way through Soviet times right to today. This, this, this inability to understand, this inability to command and win the respect of the soldiers in the army. So Putin is not in a good position. Well, the scapegoating has begun, whether it's among the generals or among his political staff. And at some stage, people are going to start pointing the pistol and the finger at him because he is the person who ultimately has to take responsibility for this complete disaster. And it is a complete disaster. He can't claim a victory. The fact that he's just grasping around, clutching at straws, clutching for the tiniest victory to say, we have denazified Ukraine or we have managed to demilitarize them. That's what he's going to be claiming. But the victories that he's going to present are going to be very slight. And expectation management and damage control are really the order of the day. The danger is that um, somebody does get rid of him and we get somebody even worse. As we've said many times, there's always a bigger bastard waiting in the wings. But it won't get Russia out of the pit it has dug itself because the only way that Russia is ever going to succeed and get into the modern age is to become a functioning democracy. It, it, it never seems to appear to the or present itself to the Russian mindset that being decent, being nice, reaching out, being entrepreneurial, being enterprising. And rules-based A rules-based system. Judges, yeah, courts. That, yes, yeah. that that is the way to succeed. Mm. That you have this, this vast country across 11 time zones with an economy the size of Texas. It is an abject failure. And it is never going to sort that out. In fact, it can only get worse, given its dependency on oil and gas. It can only get worse until it reforms, until it has a leadership that realises it's better to emerge blinking into freedom and the light. We have to hope that it does that rather than blow up into a million pieces and bring us all down at the same time. That's true. But, but I think that there is a a strong enough spine, at least, to have some sort of autocracy. But autocracy is not going to make them thrive as a nation. Right, let's move on, Jamie, to the battlefield. And you feel that this war cannot be frozen. And by that, we mean that uh, basically there's a stalemate situation with both sides sitting in their trenches, uh, looking at no man's land, and nothing decided, such as they have in North and South Korea. On land, first of all, before we deal with air and sea, the Russians are using a scorched earth approach. Is this going to work for them? I don't think it will work. They might be able to inherit rubble, but that's about it. It allows them to inch forward and it might allow them to claim local victories in certain places, but it still won't allow them to hold that territory. We said that it's not going to be like the Great War. You can't just sit in trenches and think, we'll hold this section of ground, because 
the technology has changed. You're just going to be picked off by drones. You're going to be picked off by uh, terminally guided artillery shells. You're going to be picked off by special forces squads that are roaming around with anti-tank weapons. So it's going to be very difficult to make that battlefield static. The, the Russians don't have the same luxury that they had in Georgia or Chechnya or even in Syria. You can't just sit there. Well, where they're dealing with people with much less kit. With much less kit, exactly. And and with, with smaller armed forces. And actually not as well trained as the Ukrainians have been in the last few years. Well, exactly. And the Ukrainians are using Western-style tactics, and I think that has taken the Russians by surprise. And it has shown the, the, the superiority, not just in terms of motivation, but also in terms of tactics, that the, the Russians haven't been able to use individual initiative. I mean, the fact that they they made so many attempts to cross one section of river with pontoon bridge and were taken out every single time, that is so Russian. The, 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 the sheer bloody-mindedness, the sheer lack of insight or imagination. Or empathy for the men who were going into the meat grinder. Exactly. But they couldn't even think around that problem. They couldn't think wider and think, let's go further downriver. Let's change the timing. Let's do something surprising. So they haven't been able to do that. And the Ukrainians have. So that has given the Ukrainians advantage. I think that there's certainly going to be more attrition. And we've talked about the Ukrainians suffering and they will take heavy casualties. Yes, but, so both sides are going to suffer enormous pain. It's who can ultimately bear it. Yes, and I suspect it will be the Ukrainians. And I don't think you're going to be able to get these massive Russian pincer movements that the, the Russians were hoping for at the start. They've already had to, to cut back on on their aims. So that, that that is not going to happen. Is it possible the Russians could run out of equipment? Oh, they are running out of equipment. We mentioned the T-62 tank. I mean, this is a tank designed in the 1950s. So, and, and the logistics chain for that is going to be a nightmare because it uses a different calibre gun to uh, modern Russian tanks. So wherever you go, you are getting real problems. And even if they take stuff out of deep storage... How are they going to get the components? How are they going to get the spare parts? Well, I suppose if it's just artillery pieces and shells, they can do that all day long, can't they? Yes, but again, they have to keep on churning out the artillery shells and their stockpiles of every kind of munition will be getting very low by now. So it's going to be very difficult to sustain it. It always makes me laugh that, that the Western press go, the Russians have, a, have unleashed a cruise missile blitz across Ukraine, and then you discover it's 20 cruise missiles. Well, I'm sorry, that's not a blitz. 500 cruise missiles is a blitz. And it just shows the, the paucity of precision weapons now in the Russian arsenal. And... Yes, they're using strategic weapons, long-range weapons like cruise missiles, but again, it shows the, the lack of success on other fronts, that they're just randomly taking out infrastructure and strategic points, but they're not actually achieving very much. Could Putin solve the problem by having a general mobilisation, basically putting the entire country behind this effort? We, we mentioned that earlier, and I, I, I've always thought no, because it would be more rubbish in. So that, that again, won't achieve anything. Um, 
having people walk across no man's land in closed ranks is not going to win the day for the Russians. You've still got to train men. You've got to uh, uh, get them au fait with military tactics, communications, how to cooperate with other arms, with artillery, with armoured vehicles, with other infantry vehicle, other infantry units. And I can't see any sign of that at all. And we'll get on to it. The impossibility of dominating the airspace, something the Russians haven't been able to do either. So on so many levels, they failed, and I cannot see them turning this around or suddenly getting the punch. Although it was a a very different um, conflict in Iraq and Afghanistan, do you think it has helped um, the Western forces who have then been training the Ukrainians, say the Brits and the Americans, in, in sort of honing their militaries? Or is it so different that, it's, uh, that the combined ops is a completely different thing? I, I, I think we were under no illusions of how stratified and stultified the Russian military are, that, that it's very easy to overestimate the enemy, it's very easy to over-egg their capabilities, and we've talked about this, but there's no doubt that the flaws in the Russian military have come to the fore in this conflict because they cannot fight a moving campaign, a quick, flexible uh, campaign that allows them to shift force, that allows them to attack uh, and break through. And I think uh, there's perhaps the successes we thought we saw in Russia were just their basic ability to apply brute force in places like Syria and Georgia. That's right, and they were against much diminished forces. I mean, the the Georgians had quite a lot of success against the Russians, and that was one of the first signs of Russian weakness in their their inabilities and the cock-ups they made there in terms of logistics, for example. So when will the Georgians be chucking them out? I certainly think that those peripheral Russian states or former states, former Soviet republics, are going to become a bit more confident in standing up to the Russians in future because if the Ukrainians can do it, they can certainly do it. And the Russians don't have the firepower or wherewithal anymore to carry the fight across the entire spectrum of their land space and and take on enemies around the periphery. They, They just can't do that anymore. And this has shown up the weaknesses inherent. Okay, well, let's move on to the war in the air, or rather the lack of it in some respects. That has been a catastrophe for the Russians. It's been the law, really, of the West, that really to dominate a battlefield, you have to dominate the airspace. And Russia, from day one, has failed to do that. And to dominate the airspace, you have to suppress the air defence of the other country. Yes, and... Suppression of air defences, or SEAD, as we call it in the West, is a very specialist game. The, the Americans put a lot of effort into it. They have specialist wild weasel F-16 squadrons that practice all the time, train all the time for this mission. The Russians don't. They hang some anti-radiation missiles on their aircraft, fly over and their aircraft get shot down. It's a dangerous, complex task. 
and the Russians don't train for it. I, I gather that their pilots have about 100 hours in the air each year, and that's not enough. So... So the Western Air Forces, when you say they train for it, what do they do? They have to go and be basically acquired by the anti-air missiles, and then before they get shot down, they well, and they dump co- a and they coordinate with drone attacks, with with decoy attacks, with radar jamming, with they they have the whole panoply of the electronic warfare spectrum involved. And the wild weasel squadrons, the attack squadrons, are just a sharp end of that. The, 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 but, but the Americans are particularly good at it, and they have the resources for it. I mean, the UK has the air-launched anti-radiation missile, but we don't have dedicated anti-radar squadrons that the Americans do, for example, and the Russians certainly don't have them. So they haven't managed to even suppress their own types of missile i mean the s300s for example the, the, the russian tech the, uh, russian tech and mm. and if you can't take out your own tech you're you're in trouble so they haven't managed to do that so that's the first thing but also the um there's an ex- been an extraordinary failure of the air assault you know the paras and helicopters um dropping in say on hostimel on the airport and so on They're, they've achieved nothing with that a, a, a total disaster for the Russians, and that was something they, they put so much effort into their airborne forces, their airborne assault. But had they put effort in, or was it all just a paper tiger? It was a paper tiger, like so many of the, their, their capabilities. But they called them their elite, they actually trained hard, but they didn't understand that in a patchwork battlefield where they didn't dominate the whole front, their Aleutian 76 transport aircraft, their combat helicopters, their attack helicopters were highly vulnerable and their directed infrared countermeasures were not effective. So all the systems that they've put on their aircraft, all the tactics they've tried have failed and they have lost a huge number of airborne forces and special forces. So they're going to have to rethink that. In fact, the West is really going to have to think air assault as well. They should have um, watched a bridge too far. That might have got them started in the right direction. Well, I think the West has understood that certainly unsupported paratroops are very vulnerable and paratroops with light weapons that cut off from from main forces are very vulnerable as well. So there there has to be a significant rethink on that. But those two areas, suppression of enemy air defence and air assault, uh, are, are two areas where, where the Russians have failed abysmally and, and they're not going to be able to pull that back oh. at all. Well, we've done a, an episode on them, or rather you did, A Bloody Bite, um, but the the great uh, success of this conflict so far, or at least um, has been very effective, have been the drones. Drones have come to the fore, and it has changed the battlefield and changed the sort of mentality. And it shows that cheap systems, you know, not the, the, the major high-tech end of the system like the Reaper drones in the, in, in the West or Protector drones in the UK, that, that, that in this situation, they are not the answer. What has been the answer, not just the TV2 Bayraktar drones from, from, from Turkey, which in themselves are pretty cheap, but the, the really cheap commercially available drones that the Ukrainians have brilliantly adapted 
uh, cargo drones that can drop warheads, uh, yeah. d- just basic uh, domestic drones that have managed to film so much footage and spy out targets among the Russian formations. So that has been a huge change, both in terms of the reconnaissance and in terms of the attack capability. Yeah, someone's going to have to work out uh, a, me- a measure, a way to counter drones, you know, knock out their comm systems or something. I'm sure there are ways to do it, but they clearly haven't got them sorted out yet. Well, this is why the, there's been such a move towards directed energy weapons. It's no coincidence that the Americans and the UK are beginning to deploy or at least test uh, laser weapons fitted on striker vehicles. The, the, this is definitely the way things are going because you, you, you can't just use surface-to-air missiles to take out thousands of drones. Directed energy weapons are definitely the way to go. And, uh, That's to fry their electronics, is it? Yes, yeah. it is. It is. Uh, and that will bring them down. And they have been tested. And you're, you're going to start getting the rapid deployment of those systems. Uh, whether the Russians manage to deploy their system is, is another thing entirely. And I suspect they won't be able to do that successfully at all. All right. And the last part is obviously what's been going on in the sea, and particularly... Um, We're hearing a lot at the moment about Odessa and grain stuck in Odessa and how Russian fleet has been behaving. I think that it's a reminder. We talked about appeasement and and it is a reminder that appeasement doesn't work. I think that the other great lesson that we should take from this entire conflict is that we need to act earlier. We need to see what is coming and respond rather than waiting for a crisis and then trying to send the weapon systems that are needed. It is quite scandalous that Ukraine does not have, apart from its Neptune domestically produced anti-ship missiles, it's scandalous that we did not send them harpoon anti-ship missiles, which have been around for decades. They're then pretty old hat now, but they could have effectively kept the Black Sea fleet at bay. It could have kept the the grain silos of Odessa open, and it could have scared the Russians into keeping their navy back at Sebastopol. I think at some stage the Ukrainians will probably mount a fast attack craft um, assaults against the Black Sea Fleet. They're very good at guerrilla fighting and I suspect they'll take to the sea. Are we going to send them harpoon? I hope that the West does. The the Americans and Europe have been fairly, well, have been extremely slow in this, but but I think that... Are they worried about giving away the tech? It's it's quite an old system. It's not so much the tech, it's more being blamed by the Russians if if a major... Russian naval asset is sunk by uh, an identified weapon supplied by an identified European country or by maybe American. we should get the French to send them ex- exosets. They don't seem and to then mind. And, and then use their kill switch that also they've never tended to use before. Yeah. But but yeah, the exoset is even older hat. So uh, there's no doubt that we could have sent this equipment and we should be sending this equipment, and it it, it might yet happen. But at the moment. The UK sent brimstone that can be used against armoured vehicles and against uh, surface vessels, but they've got small warheads. Yeah, they're not going to sink a ship. It's more a harassing element, but so it would be useful, and at least they can be fitted on patrol craft, so the Ukrainians might be able to take the fight to the enemy. 
So watch this space, because I do think the Ukrainians, having been very successful in taking out a Raptor patrol craft and landing ships near Snake Island, I think they'll take the fight further afield and start hunting for the Russians. And how can this grain be got out of Odessa and through the Hellespont and, and out into the world? I don't know. No. It, it, it'll be interesting to watch. It, it, so much depends on whether the Russians are actually mined international waters. Uh, if they have, that will take uh, commitment by Western navies to go in and actually search for and neutralise yeah. the mines. And could the, the UN uh, can't do anything because Russia will veto it? Will they? Will they? Or could they send in a relief column of ships? It's that... very difficult sending in a relief column of ships into a war area because the Russians will just close it off and say, we are not responsible for your safety. And it just takes one ship to be sunk by a mine and no one will go close. So I can't see that happening uh, for some time. They're going to have to find other ways, maybe land routes, uh, to get the yes. grain out. But uh, the, uh, the somebody described how, how difficult that would be. Essentially, it would require a million truck journeys to ship out the grain. They have 25 million tonnes, and you get 25 tonnes on it, 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 It'll be a total nightmare. I mean, maybe yeah. they will be able to get something out of Odessa and hop down the coast. That's the only way I can see them doing it, really. But, but for the moment, it's going to be very tricky. But it depends how long this conflict continues for, and that's really what we're going to come to now, I guess, having looked at the land, air and sea. Indeed. OK, well, we are nearing the end now. And so I think before we sign off, we should really try and do that thing which you should never do, which is make some uh, predictions and we'll draw some conclusions at the same time. So when's it going to end, Jamie? Yeah, well, if I'm wrong, we're coming back to edit. <laughs> yeah, too late, it'll be out there in the ether. We won't be able to pull it back. Well, we made that prediction last time that, that the Russians had lost as soon as they went in. I continue to stick to that. If you want me to put on a date on it, I still maintain that this won't drag on in the way that some commentators have been claiming. I don't think it can. I don't think the Russians can sustain it. I think the Ukrainians certainly can. I don't think the Russian military machine is capable of conducting a military campaign whilst falling to pieces. So if you want me to put a date on it, I would say three more months. I would say the end of August. There, there, there was a head of Ukrainian intelligence who, who said the end of August. And I don't mind going with that because I think that if you look at the losses the Russians have suffered after three months so far, another three months, they will be so scraping the barrel. They, they will be so out of military kit and ordnance not only will they not be able to, to mount an offensive, I don't think they will be able to main the defensive either. So at some stage, they will have to go back to that golden bridge that we spoke about, the, the Sun Tzu golden bridge, of claiming that they've got some sort of victory and climb down that ladder, climb down uh, from where they are and say, we have achieved what we have set out to achieve. Of course, they won't have done that, 
but they will claim it. And we know enough about Russians and Russia and the people who lead them to know that they would tell you night was day. So they will claim that their woeful failure is some kind of victory. Uh, because by that stage, not only will they have lost militarily, but they will have lost economically and politically. And, and the Ukrainians will be upping the ante all the time with more weapon systems from the West and greater numbers in their military and continued great motivation. Exactly. So, so long live Ukraine. I still maintain that they are on the winning trajectory and Russia is not. I thought this was meant to be an independent podcast, Jamie. It's very difficult to be independent. Yeah, I agree. It's not. <laughs> not when it comes to this particular subject. Well, well, that is the most extraordinary thing about this campaign, this war. It is so black and white. It is about good versus evil. And yes, Ukraine has many faults and flaws within its system. People I know who have dealt with them a lot always talk about that sort of mobster undercurrent. And yes, there is that. But in terms of this war, in terms of their heroism, their courage, their principle, you you cannot accuse them of anything you you have to you have to give them the plaudits and 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 applaud them absolutely and and they've even before this happened there were steps going i mean zelensky were, was was even though he wasn't that popular before the war but he was definitely a a democratic improvement on on some of his predecessors you know they're moving in a direction which is west leaning rules based Democracy. And look what democracy has achieved. It has it has given them a soul. It has given them backbone. And it has given them something to fight for. Yeah. Right. Well, then it's only left for me to say, Jamie, where do you like to take the postscript? This where would I like episode? to take the postscript? I, I think with the postscript, it'd be worth looking at the intelligence game. We we did that podcast on uh, secret intelligence. And it's worth going back to that, to, to that subject, because whether it's a hot war, a cold war, or a proxy war, there is always huge scope to gather intelligence on the enemy, both signals intelligence, electronics intelligence, and physical intelligence, getting your hands on military kit. And you go back to uh, 1974 and the Glomar Explorer, that Howard Hughes ship that went out into the Pacific on behalf of the CIA and with that grab claw managed to retrieve the front section of the Soviet Delta III class uh, missile submarine, the K-129, and it managed to pull from the bottom the... I think it was the first 38 feet or something of the bow and, and, and the rest of the submarine with the code books and the missiles fell away back to the deep. But, but they still managed to pull part of the submarine up, which was a huge intelligence coup. So it shows the sort of ingenuity and the kind of resources that Western intelligence, any intelligence organisation organization puts in to trying to, to get hold of the secrets of, of the other side. In 1982, you got another example, a great example, when HMS Conqueror, the UK uh, nuclear fleet submarine, attack submarine, went up underneath 
an AGI, an Auxiliary General Intelligence ship, also known as a spy trawler. This one operated by the Poles, but obviously arranged by the Soviets and the Warsaw Pact. And HMS Conqueror had pincers on the front, controlled by CCTV inside the, the hull. And they managed to cut the towed array sonar being dragged by the AGI. But they sawed through it, so it looked as if it had snagged on rock or something like that, rather than have been cut cleanly. And HMS Conqueror towed it back to the UK. It was bundled up and sent to the US for analysis because it gave the perfect opportunity to look at Soviet sonar and to try and work out why the Soviets had leapt forward in sonar technology. Of course, little did anyone know at the time that a lot of it was because of things like the Walker spy ring in the US. There was leaking secrets, millions of coded uh, communications um, over to the Soviets. So the, the, the Russians were, the Soviets were, were developing their capabilities. But these are the sort of spy operations that are mounted. And these are the sorts of things that will be going on in Ukraine at the moment. We sent teams in during the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan. We'll be sending teams in now into Ukraine to, to pick up kit and, and analyse them and see the microelectronics and how capable they are and everything else. So the game continues. HMS Conqueror, that, that sounds like a Wallace and Gromit exercise, so no doubt um, excited a lot of Englishmen coming up with that one. But, um, Jamie, what kit are we getting a look at? What, what, what are they actually going to find out? Well, it'll certainly be things such as surface-to-air missiles, their tanks we know about, but there'll be other sorts of kit, their jamming kit, uh, any command posts that have been taken out where the Russians have been pushed back, we'll be sifting through that sort of wreckage. Uh, the debriefs and interviews of uh, Russian um, electronic warfare specialists that have been caught, the debriefing of Russian pilots, the checking certainly of downed Russian attack helicopters like the KA-52, um, any other Russian aircraft that have been shot down, uh, the cockpit gives a lot of secrets away. So we'll, we'll be looking at that. Excellent, Jamie. Well, thanks very much. Thank you, Tom. So it goes. Thanks for listening. My name is Tom Ashton and his name is James Jackson. Please subscribe to BVH on your podcast app. It really helps others to hear about us if you leave us a lot of stars and a review. You can also find us on our website, bloodyviolenthistory.com suggestions and comments you can email me at talk at bloodyviolenthistory.com thank you and good luck